Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Uh, our scripture reading is going to be from verses 18 to 25, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. I think, Father, we never grow tired of hearing it, and we pray that we never would. We pray the wonder of the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ would always remind us of what is miraculous, what is majestic, and what has a multitude of meanings for us who belong to you. And so we would pray even again as we look at this passage, as we have looked at this passage perhaps every Christmas season for so many years, that you would once again Show us the wonderful things which spring forth from your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 11th century, uh, one of the very, very great uh, philosopher-theologians, uh, Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, wrote this treatise entitled Cur Deus Homo. Now that's a Latin phrase which means why the God-man, or why did God become man? The question that was before Anselm, the question he was wrestling with was basically this. In our Christian faith, we have the fact of the incarnation. This is how God has personally and sacrificially addressed the issue of the human predicament. But is it the case that God had to deal with the human condition of our fallenness in this manner. In other words, was the incarnation really needed? Was it necessary? Could not God, for whom apparently all things are supposed to be possible, could not God have addressed the human predicament in some other manner? You know, since God is the absolute sovereign, why didn't God simply forgive the trespasses of the human race. Why did it have to be the way of the cross? Why did God become man? That's the question 
we're considering this morning. Why was there a need for the Incarnation? Now, to get to the answer, we're going to be looking at this particular passage here in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, out of verses 18 through 25, we're particularly going to be concerned with what is spoken by the angel in verse 21, and then the interpretation of that that's given in verse 22, 23, especially verse 23. There are three particular words we're going to focus on uh, to understand the need of the incarnation. What is said in verse 21 in terms of sins, our sins, addressed by the incarnation. Uh, what is said in verse 23, uh, the prophetic name, Emmanuel, God with us. And then again, what was said in verse 21 in terms of the naming that the angel had given to Joseph, his name, Jesus. So, those three ideas we're going to focus on in order to address the question of the incarnation. Why was the incarnation needed? Now, in the first place, let's start again with the human predicament, the, the place we began last week. Uh, the predicament, the human predicament, is referred to in that phrase, their sins. Now, what this refers to is something that we want to develop in some depth. We want to look at this because we want to say that in a certain sense, the human predicament itself is the reason why God became man. Uh, that's part of the answer. But it's not the full answer. Uh, it's, it's not actually the place where we need to begin by just simply saying human predicament. But the human predicament points to one of the most significant aspects of, of, of why God had to become man. And that's because, as we saw last week, the human predicament declares to us, as we see it in Scripture, that we have this inability to ever save ourselves. The human predicament, first of all, is this. Human beings are absolutely rotten to one another. Now, you may say, well, not all the time. No, not all the time. And not in every instance. But it is the rottenness of human beings to one another, what is commonly called man's inhumanity to his fellow man, the inability of human beings to love their neighbors as they love themselves, that has been that which has been so problematic throughout the history of the human race. Because even though for thousands and thousands of years we have seen how human beings treating each other badly has always worked out badly for those who were the treaters and those who were the treated, even though we have again and again thought this philosophy, this teacher, uh, these leaders, this government, this economic system, this, these kinds of things that we thought could benefit human civilization and the human race, all of those efforts for thousands and thousands of years have failed ever to cure the human heart of its incessant turning back upon itself, selfishly, narcissistically, preferring itself before God, preferring itself before all others, always emanating again and again and again in human beings ultimately, finally, being rotten toward one another. That's the human predicament. And we saw last week that the problem is, the reason why there's no human cure, is because it's the human heart itself which is the source of this issue. The heart that is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. 
Now this morning, we want to look at something else, something more, something just as significant about the human predicament, and that is this. The human predicament must also be defined by man's moral indebtedness before God. This is another way in which we look at how the New Testament treats this matter of sin. The angel says in verse 21 that Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. So sins is obviously the problem. And we have a number of ways in which the Bible and the New Testament speak about human sin. Human sin is understood to be a falling short of the glory of God. It's, it's a missing of the mark. It's a failure to keep the standard. It's a trespassing of God's command. It's a violation of his holy law. But one other aspect that the Bible says about human sin is this. It is a debt. It is, in fact, related to the moral obligation that we owe to God and which we owe to one another, which we do not keep. And every obligation you do not keep is considered a debt. So the New Testament considers our sin to be a great moral debt before God. Now, all of us have been taught this, if we've ever been taught the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, In the fifth petition, I believe it's the fifth one, we pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And later on it says, and if we do not forgive the trespasses people do against us, then God won't forgive our trespasses against him. The word trespass, the word debt are synonyms. The word debt here refers to that which we owe to God which we fail to pay. And what do we owe to God? Perfect, perpetual obedience. Always doing exactly what God desires for us to do, what God has commanded for us to do, what God has shown us to do at every moment, in every situation, in every circumstance, obedience to God. And we fail to do so. This Sin is a moral debt against God's holy character. It's against God's holy nature as the moral governor of all that he has created. Our sins are an offense and offensive to God. It's an offense against his dignity, against his majesty, against his goodness, against his justice, against his love. We can never dismiss this debt as something that's trivial. Nor can God. God himself must be righteous and just with respect to who he is and how he conducts his moral governance over his creation. And so as the prophet has said, God is of purer eyes than to ever look upon sin. Meaning... A holy God, in the final analysis, cannot tolerate, allow, go unchecked the moral debt that human beings owe to him. Now, this means, then, that we have a debt that we must pay. This debt to God must be paid in order for us ever to become right with God. So, why don't we pay it? Why can't we pay it? 
Why can't we pay this debt ourselves? Well, here's why. First, think about where would this debt repayment have to begin? An immediate payment of our moral debt to God would have to have a starting place. And that starting place, the very beginning, would also have to be something that we would never fail to keep up forevermore. Now, that starting point is this. Instantaneously, from this point forward, for always and forevermore, we would have to, right now, begin and continue to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And that would mean, in terms of loving God, a perfect, complete fulfillment of the first half of the law of God, that we would have to own God as our God before all other gods, that we should never commit the sin of idolatry in every sense, that we should always use God's name in holy reverence, that we would always keep His day and the time that He's given to us to keep properly for Him. It would mean all the things that God has ever said in Scripture concerning our relationship with Him. We would have to keep all of those things from this point forward. And then we would have to love our neighbors as ourselves. We would have to love each person and every person. The people we like, the people we don't like, the people we barely tolerate, the people we enjoy being with, the people we can't stand, the people who hate us, the people we, we would never say this to God, the people we hate. We would have to love all of them no less than we love ourselves. That would be the starting point, and that would be what we would have to persist in forever and ever and ever. But what's the problem? Why can't we do that? Why don't we do that? We saw this last week. It is because we not only don't really love God and others like this, it's because we don't have it in our heart to do so. The Apostle Paul said this about us. Notice, he said this about us. We are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossiping, slandering, hating God, being insolent, being haughty, being boastful, being inventors of evil, disobedient to our parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We know God's righteous decree that people who are like this, who practice these things, deserve to die. But we not only do them, but we give hearty approval to everyone else who does them as well. Romans chapter 1, 29 to 32. We don't even have the ability to get to the starting point of what it would mean to repay the debt we owe to God. But, but even if our hearts wanted to pay this debt, we wouldn't have the moral resources to actually do it, and here's why. We are in a hole. We are in a severe moral deficit. Now, you and I know that if you are without work for a period of time and you start racking up a lot of debt, usually on credit cards, 
that the day you start a good job, but maybe that good job only pays for your current and continued living expenses, that things might seem to be right, but on the balance sheet, you still have a huge debt that's not yet been paid. So even if from this moment on you could love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, it would not abolish the debt you had yesterday. That debt would still be an outstanding debt before God. Your good life from this point on, your good credit score from this point on does not cancel the debt. It doesn't. Never could. Never will. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law in order to do them. The curse is the fact that we have a past moral debt that doesn't get eliminated by future good behavior. Even if that behavior were perfect. Human beings have a debt they cannot pay. But, okay, fine. Why doesn't God just forgive it then? <laughs> Look, we, we're, we're stuck, God. Why don't you just come along and forgive the debt? Can't you do that? Well, let's explore a couple of good reasons why this would not only be unwise, but you would actually not be happy if this were the case. Now, I want you to think about that. There are many out there who think that God ought to be able to just forgive anything and everything, and everything would be hunky-dory. But I want to show you that that's the most shallowest kind of thinking that human beings can ever have before God. In a moral sense. Now, a sovereign forgiveness would violate God's own sovereign sense of justice. God can't dismiss this debt by simply a sovereign act of mercy with violating his own sovereign righteousness and justice. How many of you are familiar with the uh, King Arthur and and Knights of the Round Table Camelot story. Now, in particular, I'm thinking about the, the Richard Harris and uh, Red, uh, Vanessa Redgrave uh, movie of, you know, 40 years ago, where, uh, you know, the storyline is essentially this. King Arthur establishes his round table and the Knights of the Realm upon a sense of strict justice and order so that throughout the realm, everyone can trust the fact that if they do what is right, everything's going to be fine, but if they do what is wrong, injustices will be properly punished. That's, that's the chivalry and that's the justice of King Arthur's court. Now, King Arthur has the greatest love of his life, Queen Guinevere, and then his greatest friend is the greatest knight of the round table, Sir Lancelot. But what happens? His great love for them is betrayed. They fall in love with each other. They commit adultery. Falling in love is no excuse for committing adultery. They commit adultery. And the king finds out, and the kingdom finds out, and justice must go forward. 
And so justice does. Lancelot flees. Queen Guinevere is arrested. She's tried. She's convicted. She is sentenced to burn at the stake. Now, there is Arthur on his throne. He has not ceased to love Guinevere, nor has he ceased to love Lancelot with this intense love which he had for them before they betrayed him. But what is he going to do? If he, as sovereign king, commutes the sentence against Guinevere, the rest of the realm will come to understand that justice isn't true justice. Justice is just some kind of favoritism. That justice doesn't really matter. That justice isn't impartial. That justice isn't truly people receiving what they properly deserve. So there's this intense problem for Arthur. If he follows through with justice, his queen dies. If he follows through with love, his realm will fall apart. He cannot forgive Guinevere. He cannot pardon her sin without jeopardizing justice. But then again, he can't carry out justice without his heart breaking over the fact that this would bring the end of his life and ultimately Lancelot as well. Now, this illustrates in its own way why God himself cannot ignore the moral guilt that human beings have acquired, this moral debt before God. In Exodus 34, 7, even in the context in which God is saying to Moses that he's a merciful and gracious God, he puts the most significant caveat, not a simple caveat, it's the morally high caveat in which he says in Exodus 34, 7, that he will by no means clear the guilty, which means God will not violate his justice. It means God's not going to treat the guilty party as if they were innocent. That's what it means. Abraham had said in an important context where judgment was coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham had reasoned through with God and had said, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes. In fact, the ESV points out, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, he will. God can't forgive. God can't be merciful if that means justice will be violated. But here's another reason. And perhaps this connects more with you because the other reason was about God and what God ought not to do because it would violate his own sense of justice. But what if pure free mercy violated you? Think about this for a moment. Our moral debt to God involves the reality that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, human beings perpetrate great evil against other human beings. 
So if God simply forgave the moral debt of human beings, what is that action doing to the victims who have suffered evil from other human beings? Now listen carefully. It is a simple moral truth. Mercy to those who perpetrate evil is always, inevitably, an injustice and cruelty to those who are the victims of that evil. Ask every woman who sincerely and rightly is, and is involved in the current Me Too, hashtag Me Too campaign. Whitewash, whitewash the sins of male perpetrators. What does that do to these women? Showing some kind of blanket forgiveness and mercy to them? What does it do to their sense of what happened to them? You know, the standard fallback illustration here is imagine Adolf Hitler standing before God. And most of us say, no more evil dude than Adolf Hitler ever because of all the things which he has done. But imagine him standing before God and God were to look at him and say, hey, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. I forgive you. Come on into heaven. What would God's mercy to Hitler say to all of those who suffered the perpetration of evil, the six million Jews, the, the millions of others who suffered as well? What would it say to them in terms of their understanding, God, have you looked at our suffering? God, have you seen the evil done to us? God, have you seen what was perpetrated against us? What would it say? How could you possibly believe that Okay, evil doesn't really matter to God, does it? You could do whatever you like and it doesn't matter because God is going to treat you at the end of the day as if you were perfectly fine. Do you see why? You do not want God within himself to ever desire to give a blanket forgiveness to every human being who has ever lived. Because what that means is if you have ever been the victim of someone's perpetration of evil, it doesn't matter. It never mattered. It won't finally matter. It won't eternally matter. It has no moral status before God at all. That's what blanket sovereign forgiveness means. And any one of us who's ever been the victim of a crime who have watched what happens to that person before the judge, where the judge has commuted sentences, where the judge has canceled penalties, where the judge has basically said, it doesn't really matter what you've done, I'm letting you go essentially scot-free. The sense of being victimized again is a concrete moral reality. That's what we're dealing with here. God's mercy can't be dispensed in that way without it bringing cruelty and, and injustice to those who suffered evil at the hands of perpetrators. There has to be another way. There must be another way. 
for God to be both just and merciful. Without His justice being violated and where His mercy can be fully fulfilled. Here's another reason God doesn't simply forgive our moral debt. It's human nature to take advantage of it. In Isaiah 26, verses 8 to 10, God says this, Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. And then halfway through verse 9, God goes on to say, Isaiah goes on to say, When your judgment come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Yeah, when God's judgments come upon the earth, people learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. What's being said there about human nature Those who perpetrate evil when they're shown grace and favor rather than justice do not mend their ways. They do not change their ways. Instead, they will continue to do evil, thumbing their nose at the majesty of God. So here's the point about the human predicament. We have this infinite moral indebtedness before God. Every human being is obligated in this debt. There's no one who's not a moral debtor to God. There is no one of us who can ever make this payment. It is an infinite debt. It's mankind's debt. Man ought to pay it. It's an infinite debt, but only God would ever have the ability to pay it, and God won't answer the problem by simple forgiveness. Now, I said we would take some time to develop the human predicament infinite death. What is God's solution? It's found in what Matthew says in terms of the meaning of this wonderful prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. We shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. If it's a debt that man must pay, but man cannot pay it, if it's a debt that only God ought to pay, or God can pay, but God really isn't in a position to pay it as God, then what is the solution? The the solution that God has given to this is His Son, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us, the God-man. We look at the word Emmanuel. It's a prophetic name, and therefore it's a descriptive name of who this child is going to be. God with us, God in the flesh, God become man, the incarnation. In the incarnation. This is how God shall do it. Uh, In the incarnation, Jesus Christ is fully man, but he's a man without debt. Uh, We're told in the book of Hebrews that he is purely sinless and undefiled, unblemished. He is without sin. He does not have this debt, and therefore he has the capability as man, he's in a position as man to pay the debt. But a man is finite. But Christ, the person of Christ, is also fully God. And because he's fully God, he can pay this infinite debt. And so it is the incarnation, Emmanuel, which is the great answer to the human 
predicament. It's the very thing that can meet this infinite debt. Now, I'm a, I realize I've got 30 more minutes of message here, and, but we have 15 more minutes of service. So I am going to... It hurts so much. <laughs> it hurts so very, very much. I'm going to my last point right now and remind you of what the word Jesus means. The word Jesus is the sweetest name we know. It means God saves. It means God is our salvation. It means God in the person of his son, Jesus, is the one who has saved us by his cross. It's the cross of Jesus that paid this infinite debt on our behalf. Because when God the Son died, it is God who experiences through his human nature this infinite penalty of sin and his death upon the cross. And therefore, the death of Jesus has this infinite value. It is sufficient to cover all the sins of everyone at any time, in any place who puts faith in Him. That's the great name of Jesus. How does this affect your standing before God? Faith in Christ means this. Your debt has been paid for you. Your account has been settled. By the means of his own blood, Christ has secured eternal redemption, the writer to Hebrews says. So I'm going to conclude. Um, some of you know this is one of my favorite stories. I don't like to use it too often, but it is one of my favorite stories. I got it from James Montgomery Boyce, who got it from Donald Grade Barnhouse. Uh, it's about Tsar Nicholas I of Russia, who, during the time that he was Tsar, uh, knew a young man who was the son of his very, very best and beloved friend. So the love that he had for his friend, he also gave to his son's, his friend's son. And so he wanted to establish, because he was Tsar, he could do this, his friend's son into a good career. So he did so. He, he put him into the Russian army, put him at a border fortress, and put him in charge of the treasury. He was the paymaster for all the soldiers. Well, his young friend started out well, but then fell into bad habits, began to gamble. He gambled away, first of all, all of his own wealth, and then he gambled away a great fortune taken from the treasury of the Tsar's army, the government funds. His debt, over time, became prodigious. And then one day he received notice that the next day the accountant was going to come through and there was going to be a complete inspection of the books. So he calculated exactly how great his debt was. Then he looked at the small amount of money that he had to repay. He subtracted the lesser from the greater and the debt was still astronomical. He looks at the figures, he picks up his pen and he writes in large letters on the book, so great a debt, who could pay? Then, because he can't see any way out of this, he contemplates suicide. 
He figures then that at the stroke of midnight, uh, with his gun in hand, he's going to take his life. The night was warm. It was drowsy. And, in fact, he, waiting for the midnight hour, he fell asleep at his desk. Now, Nicholas had this interesting habit of often dressing in the habit and clothing of a common soldier when he would make his visits to the various army outposts. He wanted to visit in that kind of incognito situation in order to see how the soldiers were doing, dressed like a common soldier. He did that this night. He comes to the fortress, and he wants to visit his young friend. And so when he moves around there, he comes up to the door. He notices that the light is still shining underneath it. He knocks, no answer. The door is unlocked. He goes in. He sees the young officer asleep at his desk. He sees the books. He sees the money. He sees the gun in the young man's hand. The whole thing becomes clear to him in an instant. His first thought is to awaken this young friend, to place him under arrest. But then he reads the young man's note. So great a debt. Who could pay? And his heart goes out to the young man. Picking up the pen, he writes one word and departs. A few hours later, uh, the young man wakes up and he realizes it's already past midnight and he reaches for his revolver because he's resolved to do this deed. And then <laughs> his eye catches sight of the note. He sees something there that wasn't there before. <laughs> it's the word Nicholas. He goes to his files, pulls out a bona fide the exact signature of Nicholas comes over and compares the two and he's astonished. They are one and the same. It was the czar's true and real signature. So great a debt, who could pay? Nicholas. So instead of taking his life, he rested upon the word of Nicholas. The next morning, he wasn't surprised when a messenger came around with all of the funds necessary to repay the great debt. And so when the inspector came later, all the money was there. All the books were in order. His account had been paid because of the grace of his king, Nicholas. God didn't just forgive you. He paid your debt first. That's why we needed the incarnation. We needed the infinite God-man to pay our infinite debt. That our accounts might be settled. That we might be forgiven and saved. Let's pray. Our God and Father, Speak to us again and again of not only our great moral debt before you, but that you have paid that debt, settled our account, 
given us your grace and forgiveness that we might have everlasting life with you forevermore. Oh, Lord, this is our thought, our celebration, our rejoicing during this season. It's also what the table of the Lord Jesus reminds us of, what he came and did for us. So prepare our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.